Boba Fett. If you're familiar with Star Wars, you know he's the badass-looking bounty hunter who escorts Han Solo encased in carbonite to Jabba the Hutt's palace in Return of the Jedi. Well, the Empire Strikes Back, but you see it in Return of the Jedi. If you're not familiar with him, just know that he somehow is a fan favorite despite having only four lines in the original series. Technically five, but one of them's just a scream. And then he's given one of the most comically humiliating deaths in Star Wars franchise history by flying into the side of a sail barge and then falling into a pit just to be devoured by a multi-tentacled alien beast whose immense gaping maw is lined with several rows of sharp teeth. The Sarlacc. It really is wild that a character so trivial developed such a massive fan following. A huge backstory was eventually developed. Books, comics, Boba Fett even became the catalyst for the first ever live-action Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, which you can watch on Disney+, and it's the reason we're talking about him today. This is Issue Zero, a show about the power of pop culture in fandom. I'm your host, Fred Kennedy, and today we'll be answering the question, what is a Mandalorian? And we won't be doing it alone. We'll be joined by current Valiant comic book editor, Heather Antos, who used to work on the Star Wars comics over at Marvel. Thousands of years ago, in a galaxy far, far away, meaning California in 1978, Star Wars became a phenomenon. A New Hope was released the previous year, and it was a massive commercial success. In the film, unlikely hero Luke Skywalker is drawn into a galactic conflict between the Empire and the Rebel Alliance by two droids and an old Jedi Knight. And he helps make one of the Rebellion's most significant victories possible. A sequel was inevitable, which was good, as George Lucas had always envisioned A New Hope as merely being part of a larger story. In fact, he was already working on The Empire Strikes Back when he, along with concept artists Joe Johnson and Ralph McQuarrie, came up with the idea of these Jedi fighting Super Commandos. You can read all about the Super Commandos in Joe Johnson's Empire Strikes Back sketchbook. And at this point, there was no Boba Fett. There was just this vague notion of these elite commandos, eloquently dubbed Super Troopers. These Super Troopers, it rhymes, were from the Mandalore star system, though, and they were meant to be different. They were meant to be special. But how did these Super Troopers become Boba Fett? Well, according to Pete Vilmer's book, Proto Fett, The Birth of Boba Fett, there were a few factors at play. In April of 1978, Lucas was finishing up his draft of The Empire Strikes Back, and he needed a new villain to stand beside Darth Vader. And he didn't want this villain to be just another Imperial officer, because that made the Star Wars universe feel small and limited, the exact opposite of what he was going for. So he leaned on his original concepts for Darth Vader, who at one point was intended to be this bounty hunter-wanderer. Now. This is stuff I'd never heard before, but this is all in the Star Wars database, so I'll take it as canon. If you disagree or have other info, please feel free to email me, okay? Anyways, for Lucas, as he continued to work on Darth Vader, shaping into that more sinister Dark Knight that we've all come to know and love, the idea of being a bounty hunter sort of fell by the wayside. Fortunately, George Lucas kept all those notes because those concepts became the groundwork for Boba Fett. So Boba Fett 
Right now, he's just a rogue Darth Vader spinoff, a bounty hunter. But is that the most important part of Boba Fett? No. Heather Antos sums him up nicely. Uh, so picture a really, really cool helmet. That's it. Is that it? Is he just a mask? It's that, the, the mystery, right? You don't know who it is, and it, and it has this kind of, like, warrior, um, like the Spartans war, things like that, and so it just, it looks badass, you know? It, do, it doesn't matter who's wearing it, you're gonna look cool. He is kind of a mystery, isn't he? Let's try and pull the curtain back, though, and find out where that iconic look of his came from. As we mentioned, he's originally from the Mandalore system located in the Outer Rims. In Empire Strikes Back, he's one of six bounty hunters hired by Vader, who promises a reward to whoever captures the crew of the Millennium Falcon. Fett tracks the starship to Cloud City, where Vader captures its passengers and tortures its captain, Han Solo. Vader ensconced Solo in Carbonite, and Fett takes him off to Jabba the Hutt's palace. George Lucas was in a big Western phase, too. He was a massive fan of Sergio Leone's work, and so he took a lot of influence from those movies and applied them directly to his new character, specifically Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider. British actor Jeremy Bullock, the actor who played Boba Fett in the original trilogies, says that he was instructed to base his performance on Clint Eastwood in A Few Dollars More. He told me this personally, actually, when I interviewed him for Teletoon years ago. And there's even rumors that Clint Eastwood was offered the role. But that's idle internet talk, so I can't really confirm it actually happened. I'm only bringing it up because I'm also a Sergio Leone fan, and I can see a very, very clear comparison there. Here's what's wild. Jeremy Bullock only got the role because he fit the costume. That's it. And he never saw a script for the film either. And this is something else he confessed to me when I interviewed him at Wizard World Con here in Toronto back in 2010. But did you know that George Lucas was so excited about the idea of his brand new character that he agreed to have him appear in the Star Wars Holiday Special? Now, the Star Wars Holiday Special is, well, legendary. Trust me on this. You will want to watch it if you haven't. You know, I feel like we could do an entire episode on just that. And maybe we will. Because this had a huge impact on the franchise, despite how ridiculous it is. So here's George Lucas. Late spring, 1978. And he has a new villain he's excited to share with the world. And it's going to be shared two years before he intended it. What to do? He's got to be badass. He's got to be iconic. Unfortunately, George Lucas is working with two legends of character design, the previously mentioned Joe Johnson and Ralph McQuarrie. So he picks up the phone. Maybe it wasn't a phone call. I don't know. I couldn't really find any specific records on exactly what was said or how it was said. But I like to think it was on a rotary-based phone call. George told them that he had this new character. And that it needed to look cool, like as bad ass as possible. What could they do? Well, remember the armor for those cleverly named super troopers? Those super troopers became the costume for Boba Fett. In fact, the first screen tests featured him in an all-white uniform. But it was decided he needed a new color scheme to make him stand out from the all-white stormtroopers and the stark blackness of Darth Vader. The color scheme he wound up with was meant to feel at home in a Western. Give him a menacing, I have no moral code kind of vibe. 
I've already mentioned it, but you can read all about this in the book Proto-Fat, The Birth of Boba Fett. So now we've got the costume. We've got the vibe the character's supposed to have. When does Boba Fett make his big debut? The Christmas special that we already talked about? No! No, that's not it. Boba Fett didn't appear in person in the Christmas special at all. He was only in some animated sequences, which were actually done by the Canadian animation company Nelvana, owned by the same company that owns this podcast, Chorus Entertainment. Yay! You want to know the first physical appearance Boba Fett ever made? It was in the San Anselmo County Fair Parade on September 20th, 1978. Not in a movie, and two months before the holiday special. No one knew anything about the character. He was just this guy walking along beside Darth Vader, who for some reason was carrying a trident. Yeah, Boba Fett was carrying a, a trident. There's an entire article written about it on StarWars.com, cleverly titled, The Real First Appearance of Boba Fett. So he appears in a parade, then the holiday special. What next? Well, after the holiday special debuted, as a promotion technique for the Kenner Star Wars toys, Boba Fett starts making appearances at malls, putting up wanted posters for the main Star Wars characters. It's kind of nuts to think about that in this day and age. Like, the guy who was in a few animated segments from a holiday special in an era when not many people had VCRs to record it and no one knew what he was, was wandering around malls putting up wanted posters for the Kenner Toy Company. Not only that, but in 1979, a year before he made his cinematic debut, Kenner was working on a Boba Fett action figure that actually shot a rocket out of its backpack. But the toy was deemed a choking hazard and production was halted before it made it to the line. So there's still a few out there. And one recently went up for sale for $150,000 US. Yeah, for an action figure. They talked about it extensively on the Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us. So before the movie is even released, the official Star Wars fan club newsletter builds even more hype up by talking how Boba Fett's armor is from these super commandos from the faraway planet of Mandalore, who are these warrior people who traveled from across the galaxy to fight the Jedi during the Clone Wars, but they were wiped out because there weren't enough of them. And here's the thing. I remember that being the quasi-official story about Boba Fett from when I was growing up. This armor of his was actually from the Clone Wars. And one story that was actually published in Bantha Tracks, which is the Star Wars fan club newsletter, was that he was part of this elite Imperial squad of shock troopers before turning into a bounty hunter. And that rumor kind of gets confirmed by an appearance in the Star Wars comics, which we'll get to in just a minute. So Empire Strikes Back comes out in 1980, and no one expected the fan reaction and that much interest. Even George Lucas was taken back. In fact, according to an article from Jordan Zacharin from the website Inverse, Lucas had underappreciated Star Wars fans' love of Fett. See, when it comes down to it, we don't know much about Boba Fett. He just looked cool. I asked Heather Antos if she thought it was the combination of good looks and mystery that made people love the character. A hundred percent. I think I think it was the fact that we got this design um, and we saw it before the film came out, you know, before Empire came out. When you see 
something that's this cool design, you're going to automatically um, create some sort of story for it, some sort of mystery. There's an air, you know, fans, especially Star Wars fans, they live to speculate. And then he shows up in the film and he's barely there at all. Uh, but he's associated with the biggest badass in the galaxy, Darth Vader. Uh, he takes down Han Solo and freezes him in carbonite and is a part of that and leaves on this really, really cool looking ship. And you still know nothing about him. You still know literally nothing about him. And so, again, it's this air of mystery that you can elude and build and speculate. And because of that, fans were able to really elevate him and idolize him in any way, shape, or form that they wanted to um, because we knew nothing about him. But that all changed two years later when his story was expanded in the comic Star Wars number 68, The Search Begins, for Marvel, sort of. See, in that issue, published in November of 1982, we meet our second Mandalorian ever, Fen Shisa, who spends much of the comic pretending to be Boba Fett. After some battles with galactic slavers, Fen reveals who he is and then tells Princess Leia of his role in the Clone Wars, claiming he fought for the Empire and was led into battle by Boba Fett, who also fought for the Empire. Interesting to note, that in 1982 canon, the Empire existed during the Clone Wars, and we'll discuss that continuity in a bit. Now, here's the disconnect. There's all this talk about Boba Fett, the quasi-space cowboy. But then, Lucas continuously hacked apart any upcoming appearances in the films. Personally, I think he may have resented the sudden popularity of the character, like, that trilogy is all about the Skywalkers, and you're never going to convince me that Luke Skywalker is a cooler character than Boba Fett. And I know I'm not alone when I say that. Just go to a comic convention and bring it up with a Star Wars fan. So maybe this was just Lucas trying to minimize the damage Boba Fett was already doing to the world he made for Luke. Ahem, galaxy he made for Luke. Who knows? But we do know that according to Zacharin at Inverse, that Lucas had plans which toyed with the idea of Boba Fett becoming the major villain in Return of the Jedi, which was released in 1983. Instead, Fett's role was downgraded, and he was out of the picture within the first half an hour. And so what we got, after all that hype, was a cool costume design, fan speculation, and the beginnings of a cool backstory of this unstoppable Imperial Commando and he flies into the side of the ship, falls to his doom in a stationary sandpit monster. Lame. But his mystique was so profound. No one believed Fett stayed in the bottom of that pit. Not even me. I remember the first time I watched Return of the Jedi. It was on TV with my oldest cousin, John. And I looked at him after that scene when it went to commercial. And I'm like, he gets out, right? Everyone had this, well, yeah, he totally flew out of there kind of moment. But as Heather and I discussed, in Star Wars, as in life, you can be the best of the best. And shit can still happen, buddy. I think so. I think, and, and we see that in Star Wars. How often do we see that in Star Wars where shit just happens to the best? I don't know. I, 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 uh, we, we, thought, uh, we thought Phantom Menace was the end of Darth Maul and Spider Legs came, you know, <laughs> not too long after. So who knows, who knows uh, what, what form 
uh, Boba Fett became, he, he could be out there. We don't know. We've never seen a body. That's no, all I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> there's never been a body, but it's been slowly digested over the course of 10,000 years. <laughs> this guy, five lines and a dope outfit. Literally too cool to die. But why him? Out of all the characters in the background, why him and not, say, Wedge Antilles? See, you probably don't even know who Wedge Antilles is. Even though he had more lines than Boba Fett and appeared in every single one of the movies with dialogue. That's my point. Red 6, do you see Red 5? There's a heavy fire zone on this side. Red 5, where are you? I can't shake it! How could Boba Fett, this massive letdown of a character, possibly continue to have a fan following? Well, I think we need to remember the character was still awesome. It was still mysterious. There was an impressive backstory alluded to. I mean, even Han Solo seemed shook when he heard the name. Chewbacca knew him by sight. Darth Vader had to warn the guy. There will be a substantial reward for the one who finds the Millennium Falcon. You are free to use any methods necessary, but I want them alive. No disintegrations. As you wish. Boba Fett came with instant credibility. He just had this mystique that Susan Mace once wrote an article about for Space.com calling it the Tau of Boba Fett. And she describes him as the unknowable Star Wars character who delivers mythic presence. That's bang on. And that led to a cult following on level with the rest of the cast. The character continued to make appearances in the comics, then the animated series Droids, and the novels of the 80s and 90s had frequent appearances by everyone's favorite Mandalorian. And as the Star Wars universe expanded into other mediums, more and more details about his life emerged. Boba Fett began to take on this role as the ultimate anti-hero of the Star Wars universe. He charged outrageous fees! He would only say yes to a job if it aligned with his view of justice, which we learn about in the Star Wars anthology novel Tales of Bounty Hunters. In that book, there's a story written by Daniel Keyes Moran that says Boba Fett was once named Jester Muriel, and he'd become an outcast of the Mandalorian people after committing treason. There's so many cool nods to his past in all those expanded universe novels from the 80s and 90s. I'd really encourage you to take a look at the Boba Fett comics published by Dark Horse during the mid-90s especially. They're fantastic, and they create such an amazing backstory. Boba's cult status had gotten so big, George Lucas included him in the added footage when he re-released A New Hope in 1997. He was even going to include an additional scene in Return of the Jedi's re-release where Boba Fett managed to escape the Sarlacc. In the end, that scene was nixed again as Lucas felt it took away from the original story, but... It's a good thing he left that song and dance number from Jabba's Palace in the special editions. They really added to the plot. Then 1999 comes along. We get the prequel trilogy. And everyone is stoked. Because we're finally going to see what young Obi-Wan was like. How Vader became Vader, etc. I was really excited. I went to the theater to see Phantom Menace at least ten times. Nothing could ruin it for me. But there was a part of me that noticed cracks in what was being set up. 
things that came into direct conflict with canon established in the Expanded Universe novels, specifically the Clone Wars and how it started. The non-existence of the Empire during the Clone Wars was nothing big. I mean, I can always handle a bit of retconning. I am a comics fan, after all, and that's par for the course. The real issue I had with the prequel started when Attack of the Clones was released. See... My understanding of the Clone Wars at that point had mostly come from the Timothy Zahn Thrawn trilogy. Now, this might be a bit of a tangent, but stay with me. These novels were released in the early 90s and introduced fans to Grand Admiral Thrawn. In the books, he plans to overthrow the freshly reborn Galactic Republic, and he sets out to create an army of clones. Where have we seen this before? But the thing is... He explains what made the clones so faulty during the Clone Wars was that they all went crazy. If a clone is exposed to the Force, which exists everywhere while the clone is developing, it's only a matter of time until they go crazy, which is why the clone armies fell apart. We also learned that the policy of creating a clone army was to take your best soldiers and make copies. So if you've got a good pilot, you clone them. So you've got 10 good pilots. If you've got a great marksman, clone them. You've got 10 great marksmen. You can even clone a Jedi. And they would also be strong with the Force and a lot crazier because there's so much Force energy around them. They're amazing books, by the way. You should really pick them up. But in episode two, Attack of the Clones, all that goes right out the window. Gone. It turns out the entire clone army was created using DNA of the most perfect warrior in the galaxy. Jango Fett. Yes, Jango Fett. A Mandalorian bounty hunter known the galaxy over. Except the Star Wars fans who'd been immersed in Boba Fett lore since the 1970s. It turns out that all along, Boba Fett himself was... A clone! A perfect copy of Jango Fett, who would go on to raise young Boba as his son. Because nothing makes bounty hunting easier than dragging a kid around with you. Both Heather and I felt that this actually undermines the Boba Fett character. I think a little bit, yeah. I think I think a little bit you do. I, I think my view of Boba is different because of that. For me, I, I was I, I got to a point where I was just like, oh, screw Boba Fett. Who cares about Boba Fett? I want to know who this guy is. I want to know who this guy was so cool that they made an entire army out of him. What made him so badass? What made him so cool? Because Boba's just a copy of that. So anything Boba does is, is a byproduct. Who saw that coming? Not me with my frowny face sitting in the theater, that's for sure. But... That was what they went with, so what are you going to do? Eventually, Jango Fett gets a very abrupt, almost comical death when he tries to fight Jedi Master Mace Windu and gets decapitated. It's kind of fitting. I guess ridiculous deaths are in the genetic code. I mean, look what happened to his son. To me, it felt like George Lucas was overcompensating for the ways he'd shortchanged Boba Fett in the past. Again, Heather Antos. I don't know if... if overcompensate is is the right word. I think he was trying to, you know, make everything come full circle. That's kind of what the prequel trilogy was, you know, it's it's setting up everything and making not saying that things weren't planned, but but making things I think seem more planned than they were. Um and I think Jingle Fat was possibly one of those things. 
But what about young Boba Fett? Well, after witnessing the death of his clone-slash-dad, he flies away in his father's spaceship, the Slave One, and bears a grudge against all Jedi forever! And that was his background, which wasn't great. I mean, we even followed a young Boba through the animated Clone Wars series, which began in 2008. And I need to stress, I really like the Clone Wars series, and I watch it with my kids all the time. And it actually did some really cool things with the backstory of Boba Fett's people, the Mandalorians. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. At this point, we're talking 2002, okay? There's not a lot of details about the Mandalorians specifically. Most of what we knew at that point was introduced by Boba Fett, like in that appearance in the Marvel comic series back in November of 1982. In 2003, BioWare introduced Knights of the Old Republic, which is just, it's incredible. One of the best Star Wars stories ever, and one of the greatest video games ever released. One of the best plot twists you'll ever see in any piece of fiction, ever. In it, we learn more about the history of the Mandalorian people and their warrior ways. To me, this is really the beginning of Mandalorian myth and lore, because it addresses them as a people, specifically. Here's how Heather would describe Mandalorians to anyone new to Star Wars. So the closest I would come to is it's a culture that's raised on being warriors. You know, they're a battle-ready people, born and raised, and they're all badasses. See, the Mandalorians were a warrior people, always fighting amongst themselves. Then they united, and they began expanding outward, conquering lesser peoples and species, taking what they wanted. Their warriors were known as crusaders, and like the Jedi, they carried swords into battle. But eventually, they came into conflict with the Old Republic and its protectors, the Jedi. This was something new. The Jedi had powers the Mandalorians had never seen, and it dramatically affected their civilization. They created new armor of alloys resistant to lightsaber attacks. They became walking arsenals and developed fighting techniques that gave them equal footing with the Jedi. These wars lasted generations. There were times of peace, however. In fact, a prominent Mandalorian once became an incredibly powerful Jedi. His name was Tar Vizsla, and he created a revolutionary lightsaber with a black blade called the Darksaber. Eventually, Vizsla returned to Mandalore and unites his people under a single banner. But the Mandalorians are always struggling with their violent nature. And eventually, after a series of giant battles and internal struggles, Mandalore was left a vast white desert, incapable of maintaining conquest, leaving the planet vulnerable to the machinations of larger galactic entities and armies like the Empire. There's some really cool history that gets covered in the bonus materials of the Clone Wars and Rebels DVD Blu-ray sets. Uh, If you want to check those out, because... I gave a very, very Cole's Notes version. We'll actually focus a bit on the Mandalorians and their roles in the Clone Wars for a second, though, because it's a huge factor in what we know about the Mandalorians. See, just before the invasion of Naboo, which was a central plot piece of 1999's The Phantom Menace, the Mandalorians had fought a massive civil war. One side wanted to move forward and take their place in the galaxy peacefully. The other side was determined to hang on to those warrior roots and reinvigorate the Mandalorian people and their colonies to become a galactic power once again in its own right. In the end, the peaceful side won. But there was some animosity from the losing side who called themselves Death Watch. Great name. 
They began plotting with the villainous Count Dooku, eventually launching a series of terrorist attacks to provoke the Republic to invade in order to restore stability. It's very convoluted, but it takes place over several seasons in the original Clone Wars TV series. But eventually, Mandalore becomes firmly under the control of the Republic, with Mandalorian warriors actually training clones to take their place in the Grand Army. And since they were under control of the Republic, when the Republic became the Empire, Mandalore was firmly in Imperial hands. And the finest Mandalorian warriors became, you guessed it, Imperial Super Commandos. Not clones. Note, not clones. Just badass Mandalorian stock. We've come full circle here. This stuff is all covered in the Rebels TV series, which had 75 episodes of amazing content running from fall of 2014 to the spring of 2018. Now, remember when I said that the Mandalorians were a fractured people? Well, not everyone wanted to be part of the Empire, and a lot of Mandalorians were involved in the Rebellion, which again is covered in Rebels. But what about this new show, The Mandalorian, on Disney Plus? How'd that happen? If we've covered so much lore about Boba Fett and the Mandalorian people already. I'm just spitballing here, but there's a massive segment of Star Wars fans who feel slighted by what's been left undone with Boba Fett. And there are two big things that come to mind. Number one, Star Wars 1313. This was a video game that was going to focus on Boba Fett and the seedy underworld of Coruscant. The game had a huge amount of interest because it was unlike anything done with Star Wars before. It was going to be an adult-themed video game, which would give us a new perspective on the character in a modern adult setting, exploring the more complex themes that had been left untouched. The audience was now much more aware of Boba Fett's backstory and his people, and it really opened up a lot of room for storytelling. But the game was shelved following Disney's purchase of Lucasfilm, it just wasn't in line with their plans for the property. I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. The Boba Fett movie! Yes, as Heather Antos mentioned earlier, Boba Fett was meant to get his own movie. Again, an adult venue for storytelling to give us more about the character. According to Entertainment Weekly, this movie was going to take place in the same time frame as the original trilogy. As for story, I got no clue, man. It was apparently written by Simon Kinberg, who also wrote X-Men First Class and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. But there were some conflicts in the development phase, and it too was shelved. But this movie, and the interest that surrounded it, led directly to the creation of The Mandalorian! I know Heather is as big of a fan of Star Wars as you can get. I mean, she edited the comics for crying out loud, so... I needed her professional reaction to the announcement. I will um, be the first to admit I'm not a huge Boba Fett fan um, in general. I, I, I think, one, I think I'm from the wrong, wrong era of Star Wars fandom. Two, I just, I can acknowledge that he is a cool costume, and if that's what is your hook, that's great. But from a character standpoint, he doesn't do a lot. However... Uh, when The Mandalorian was announced, I was really, really excited because for me, I'm like, okay, cool. Now maybe we'll get a Mandalorian character that will, will fill that void that Boba Fett is for other people for me. Um, so I'm very, very hopeful and I'm very much looking forward to it. Now, the show is not about Boba Fett. 
I have to assume that in this series, Boba Fett is indeed dead and slowly being digested in the Sarlacc pit after he officially fell into it. This show, the first live-action Star Wars TV show ever, is about an entirely new Mandalorian bounty hunter. The main character is portrayed by Pedro Pascal. Solid casting choice, by the way. And what's interesting, he has no name. Just like the man with no name from the Sergio Leone westerns that Boba Fett was based on. We really are coming full circle here for the second time. But let's focus on casting. Both Heather and I agree there have been some phenomenal decisions made with the cast on this show. So, if there's one thing that I think this generation of Star Wars has done exceptionally well, and it's, it's their casting choices have been phenomenal. Um, I don't think there's ever been one casting choice that I've, I've really disagreed with. However, um, I'm very, very curious to see what Jean Favreau does as the director of this. As everyone knows, he is a huge reason. I mean, he directed Iron Man, um, which really kicked off the MCU. And, you know, with, with Star Wars mainstays like Dave Filoni and Kathy Kennedy alongside him and Story Group and everyone, um, I'm just, I'm really excited and very hopeful um, to see what John Favreau can do to kick off our first Disney Plus Star Wars series. As Heather mentioned, John Favreau serves as creator, head writer, showrunner, and co-executive producer, alongside Star Wars legends Dave Filoni, Kathleen Kennedy, and Colin Wilson. There will be eight episodes in the first season, and in July 12, 2019, during a press conference for The Lion King, Favreau revealed that he'd already written scripts for the second season and pre-production was underway. It takes place five years after the events of The Return of the Jedi, more than 20 years before the rise of the First Order. It's set in a time period we have never seen before. This is all new territory, and I am beyond excited to see the type of Mandalorian I've always wanted. The type that follows a gray moral code, has incredible fashion sense, and who doesn't get an embarrassingly comical death. Now, I know what I want to see in The Mandalorian. So before I let Heather go, I just wanted to know what she wanted. I, I want to see some, something that... I don't, so I, I'm very excited to see us explore a corner of the galaxy that isn't so burdened by Jedi and Sith mythology. Like, that's the thing that I'm most excited for because that's the sort of stuff that I'm most interested in Star Wars is to really explore the other cultures and the other civilizations out there. Because, you know, as Story Group will tell you time and time again, and even George, they don't want the universe to feel small. They want the universe to feel as massive as, as it is. If Jedi and Sith are so rare, um, it feels silly to me that we focus all of our storytelling on, on that. So I'm really excited to kind of open, you know, the more casual fans to these other corners of the universe. Heather lives in my head. She must, because she's lifting answers right out of there. Now, before I go, I'll leave you with another edition of Issue Zero Recommends. The Darth Vader comics Marvel's been putting out since 2017. They are incredible. The first arc with Charles Sewell and Giuseppe Camicoli, and then the stuff from Kieran Gillen and Salvador LaRocca, all of it. It's just incredible storytelling that really pulls back the layers of what it means to be Sith. 
and the idea that Vader is really fueled by hatred. But how complex that type of person can be. Vader hates the universe because he hates himself, his weakness, his fear. The guy is just fueled by hatred. It's a great character study that we never got to see in the movies. And at this point, I'm doubtful we'll ever get that series about Vader hunting down the last of the Jedi that's been bouncing around the rumor mill since the late 90s. So this will do. Go snag some of those trades, buddy. Great stories, great art, and a great editor who happened to join us on today's episode, Heather Antos. Special thanks to Heather, of course, for coming on the show today. Now, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Issue Zero so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen to us at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all the other guests. So if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Fearless underscore Fred, on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you can also email me at issue zero at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted, written by me, Fred Kennedy, and the amazing Dila Velasquez, our producer. Uh, and sound design and final production is by the very tall Rob Johnson. Uh, see you next time for more Issue Zero. <laughs>